Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that we do in our practice, how we show up in the world as therapists, and all of the things that happen in our practices that don't seem to be kind of the normal conversations that just kind of happen out into the world until it kind of happens. And we are joined today by a longtime dear friend, Patricia Rabbits, who Katie and I both served on the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists Board of Directors with. And we are talking today about getting a cancer diagnosis, getting a kind of view into the end of our practices. We spend a lot of time in this field, in a lot of this space. There's a lot of conversations out there about how you go into this field. And very little conversations. We've had a couple of episodes in the past around death and grieving and that kind of stuff, but really about the end of our lives, around the end of what happens with us and not always on our own terms. And we're so grateful to have Patty here with us and just a lot of love going into this episode, but also just a lot of feels coming up from the very beginning. So I just want to first of all say thank you so much, Patty, for joining us and sharing your story to help just kind of put into perspective, again, one of those conversations that just doesn't really happen until it has to happen. Yeah. Thank, thank you for that lovely introduction. I feel very touched. So I'm just going to take a breath here. Well, and I know you and I have been talking quite a bit over the past several months, Patty, and and what this journey has been and how uh, you have had to navigate this with your clients and and how you've made decisions about how your your practice continues and when it does and when it doesn't. And so I'm really excited for this conversation and maybe excited is the wrong word. I'm really I'm looking forward to this conversation because as you had mentioned when we first talked about this, you didn't have resources to go to when you got a scary diagnosis. So we'll, we'll jump into that. We can we can talk about that in a minute. But I want to give you the question that we give everyone when we uh, have them on our podcast. Who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Well, I think I would define myself in, in the context of this podcast as someone who really from childhood wanted to be a therapist before I had a word for it. I've told people about memories of um, being a child and my my games were about helping people that were in distress, my little you know games I would play with myself. So um, so I think that's a big part 
of who I am, not just professionally, but just as a as a person in in this world. So that's that's primary. Um, and yeah, I've been in private practice for over thirty years. I specialize in treating eating disorders, and that's kind of overflowed into uh, different addiction issues that people sometimes have um, that coexist, or sometimes I get referrals for people that are dealing with other addictions. Um, I also, as part of this purpose of wanting to help people, have been really active in politics, both locally, where I have been a campaign manager for several local campaigns, all the way up to on a on a national um, stage, being a regional field organizer for um, a national presidential campaign. So that's a, a big part of who I am also. And you tell us a little bit about finding out about your diagnosis. And uh, I know that there's been some time from that. We're not, you know, oh, we found out yesterday. There's been some time to process around this and some of kind of the growth that you've had. But can you walk us through kind of your initial part of the story and uh, kind of what what was going on in your mind at the time and how you handled that? Yeah, I, I'm going to start a little before I got my diagnosis because it was late last year. So that would be 2022. And people kept saying to me, oh, you should schedule a vacation or how come you're not like doing something? And I, I remembered I kept telling people I somehow I just didn't feel right. I felt like my energy level was a little off, just something felt off that I couldn't really name. And then I started to develop symptoms that initially um, I was diagnosed with um, gastritis, which is really common, especially as you get older, you know, certain foods can set up like acid stomach or reflux. And I was given medication, it seemed to help. Um, And then I developed some other symptoms where they just seemed really odd. And so I went to Google and I uh, put in the symptoms and every article I read really started with, this can be life-threatening, contact your your medical professional immediately. And so people are always curious, so I'll just share here that what I noticed was that my urine was really dark, even though I was very hydrated, and that um, my stool was really pale, which was, you know, something I'd never seen before. I thought, this isn't right. So I reached out to my doctor um, they set up some blood tests right away. It was like, please go to the lab today, which I did. And then when the results came back, it was that um, the liver enzymes were off the chart. So something was clearly wrong. And then from that point, it, it's really difficult to explain how quickly everything moved from getting the blood test to being set up with um scans and all different kinds of things. But the diagnosis really came from um, an endoscopy. So that, um, you know, you're put under general anesthesia. I'd never had any kind of surgery except my wisdom teeth taken out. So everything was really new to me. People, nobody could believe it. Like you've never had surgery. No, I had never had surgery. I'd never really been under anesthesia besides the wisdom teeth. And the next day the surgeon called And, um, I, you know, I already knew, I mean, I knew I was going to get this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. I just had a feeling, even though, 
another doctor had called me and said, oh, it's, it's gallstones, nothing to worry about. It's just like, I don't, I just don't think so. So um, I got a call from the, the doctor who had done the endoscopy, who, you know, clearly was struggling with sharing the news with me. And as um, a trained therapist, you know, it was hard for me to not jump fully into the role of trying to comfort him because I could tell he was really struggling, but he did give me that diagnosis. It's interesting that even in that moment when you knew what was going on, that you your instinct was to care for the person on the phone with you. And and yeah. I, I'm also just thinking about how I know you and how you're super healthy, a vegetarian, just someone who is constantly taking care of herself. And so it's clear you had a sense when something was wrong that it had to be really wrong. So I, I think it's it speaks to you've taken good care of yourself, you you know your body, and all of a sudden you're on the phone comforting your doctor who's telling you that you have pancreatic cancer. How did you take that in? Once you once you got through the caring for the doctor, yeah. <laughs> how did you take that in and and what were your what were your initial reactions? So I I would say that there was there's an extended period of time. I'm not even sure that this isn't still relevant where it it's just not real. You know, and as you said, I'm somebody who's really been very much focused on self-care. Said, you know, organic food, you know, I've joked with people I didn't even store leftovers in plastic, you know, exercise, just you know, just a lot of pacing myself, doing things that I knew were good self-care. So when I did share this terrible news with my friends, the first response was always, you're the last person I ever would have expected to get cancer. Um, you know, and I, and I think it just speaks to how we go along thinking that, you know, we're in control as long as we do these things and, you know, don't do the harmful things, you know, we're going to be um, healthy and live you know, to a ripe old age. So, so there was just a long period of just, it just doesn't seem real. I mean, I feel, uh, like I said, I had some symptoms, but I didn't feel like I had cancer and I couldn't really comprehend fully what it meant to have pancreatic cancer, which is such an aggressive cancer and has such really dismal out outcome percentages. Yeah. Does that answer the question? It does emotionally, but then you're also a therapist. And so you had a practice to consider. I'm just curious where your mind went about that. Yeah. And that, you know, it's very tough to hold both of those things at the same time. And initially I just thought, well, I can, I can keep working as I kind of deal with whatever is coming. Um, but then really by the next day, it became abundantly clear that this was going to disrupt my life in ways that I didn't have control of, like my phone ringing five or six times a day from different departments at Kaiser wanting to schedule things, you know, set up appointments, set up scams, set up, you know, acupuncture, just everything you can imagine. And I couldn't even like keep my, you know, 50 minutes kind of uh, as sacred space because as as we all know, if a doctor or a medical institution calls you and you don't pick up the call, it's really difficult uh, to get back to them. So I started realizing pretty quickly that I was going to need to take some time off. And then the whole question came up 
of what I was going to share with my patients and how I was going to share the news, at least that I was take I was taking a break. And that that really was very painful because the, the thing that really came up for me was just knowing how much um, the people I worked with um, really depended on me and that it's probably one of the most intimate relationships anyone has, both patient and therapist. So I was really struggling with how how to, you know, how to share this information and do it in a way that respected the therapeutic boundaries, um, but also respected all of us as just people. So I did, as um, you and I had talked about, you know, I went and started searching for articles and things that people had written and and how other people um, who were therapists had handled this. And I was really shocked by how little was out there. Um, and I think I, I found maybe one or two articles that were helpful at all. And so I felt like I, you know, I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel to a certain extent. I had to really go through this step-by-step and invent the wheel myself. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. You've always been one of our modern therapists. I, I think that you, you spoke at one of our conferences. You, um, you've been around Katie and me long enough that hopefully we've rubbed off on you in some of the same ways that you've rubbed <laughs> off on us. And I, I just have to imagine that this isn't even a one size fits all approach for your clients. The, this, what can you walk through, like even just a little bit more of like what are some of the considerations that you did with some of the clients as far as how you brought this up, and especially, I guess, once the cat's out of the bag a little bit, did it get any easier, different as as you started finding your own voice around this? Well. Initially, there was just the clarity that I was going to need to take some time off and that it was immediate. You know, it wasn't like I could give them two weeks notice that I was, you know, going to be taking off a month or something like that. And that I, it, it became really clear I wasn't in any sort of emotional space where I could have that conversation. You know, first I thought, well, you know, should I share it in session? And then I thought, I, I'm just not going to be able to do that. And then I thought, well, would it be more appropriate to make individual calls to, you know, each of my patients and and talk about this? And again, I just felt like I wasn't going to be able to 
really hold it together in a way that I felt was both professional and personal. So then I started thinking I would write a letter and and maybe the letter wouldn't be the same to everybody, but something to, you know, explain that I was going to be uh, gone for a while and just give them, you know, very kind of general information about what was going on. And every time I thought about approaching the letter or tried to sit down and write something, it was just a wall. And it wasn't just a wall of not wanting to face the reality of what I was dealing with. It just didn't feel right. It felt like this would be a violation of everything that we had worked toward in therapy, like just getting a letter that didn't allow for any kind of communication with me or to ask questions or to share any initial feelings was really just counter to everything that I I work on with people. So none of those alternatives ultimately, and I, this went on for maybe three or four days and I was, I was really broken up about it. It was very tough, but then I landed on that. I needed someone who really knew me and someone who had very good boundaries. So where I could develop uh, almost like a, like a loose script of what to share, how to field questions and give people some space to talk, but not anything resembling therapy. And so I, I asked a dear friend of mine if she would be willing to do this. And it involved, I think, over 30 phone calls. So it was a, a big task as well as a big, uh, just a big ask emotionally for, for her to do this. But she she did agree. And, you know, and I needed to come up with a way to really keep um the, you know, the confidence of my patients so that I wasn't revealing, you know, first and last names and that kind of thing. And what I came up with was really to give her the, the, their first name. And the first thing she did was say, she asked for permission to share some information that she was calling on my behalf. And so that's, that was the uh, essence of how we handled it. And um, no one was given an exact diagnosis. It was just more general, like there's, you know, a medical uh, situation has come up and that, and that you know, Patricia needs to take uh, some time off, you know, immediately. And, and then they were given referrals, a couple of people that um, had room in their practice and had been vetted so that they weren't left stranded. And that's essentially the, you know, the outline of how um, I handled this. So you were completely out of your practice for a period of time, taking care of the initial stages of assessment, treatment, that kind of stuff. But I know, and so we'll share this with the audience, that you did come back to your practice and and you were navigating it around treatment. So yeah. I think our audience doesn't know what treatment looks like necessarily, and they also don't know kind of how you assess that. So can you talk through after yeah. you got through that initial stage, how you navigated treatment? Yes. So, so the the initial stage of treatment, um, in in my case, and I think for most people, certainly people dealing with my particular diagnosis, was twelve. No, it was like six cycles of chemotherapy, and I literally had no idea how sick I was going to be, how weak I was going to be, you know, how I would feel. Some people I'd read, you know, had chemo and and they were fine and they were functional and they 
got their treatment and then went to work and other people who, you know, were on the other end of the spectrum. So I felt like what I needed to do was go through a couple of rounds of chemo and see how I was doing with it. And um, the chemo involves the cycles are two weeks each. So that was about a month. And you're, um, you're getting um, a big dose of chemo. And then you have maybe, so for me, I, I would go into an infusion center. And because it's such an aggressive cancer, my chemo was a really aggressive chemotherapy and also lasted almost the whole day. So I'd go in the morning and I'd leave in the late afternoon. You know, I, I didn't feel too badly. The other thing that was weird was that they hook you up with a pump. So then for the next 48 hours, you're getting uh, 24 hour cycles of chemo. You're just, you're on for another 48 hours. So it's like three days of chemo. And during that time, you're getting a lot of meds that control uh, your nausea, your, you know, just whatever symptoms people tend to get. So really those days are not your worst days. It's when you come off the pump and you come off those meds. And I would say just to kind of sum this up, I was really fortunate that I handled the chemo very well. And I only had one incident of, you know, what people describe as a nausea, which um, I think is so understated. What I started doing was telling people when I had that, that sickness, I literally felt I was being poisoned. You know, like you just feel like you're dying. It is mm -hmm. so completely systemic and extreme. And it only took one of those for me. I was talking to another, another person that I'd been put in touch with that had the same diagnosis and was a couple of months ahead of me in treatment. Because what they tell you when you leave the infusion center is, you know, here's your, here's your meds. And if you start to feel sick, to, you know, take it right away. But what happened on that night that I got really sick was that the, the amount of time between feeling a little sick and, and feeling like I was dying was minutes, like, like maybe two minutes, you know, where's the meds taking it, being worried that, you know, I was going to vomit up the medication, you know, it was just, so this, friend of mine said, well, what you should do is just take it on the clock. So I had one med that was every six hours, another that was every four. And I just learned that as long as I took it on, on that schedule, I'm, I'm so happy to say I never had that experience again. And so while I was very exhausted and um, very weak, I, I wasn't sick in that way. And I started to understand that there were certain days, like as you're coming out of the chemo before you go into the next treatment, where you start to feel pretty normal again. And so those were the days that I decided I could just very slowly begin to see patients again. And that ultimately really worked out well. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. You talk about how your clinical work has changed through this process. I, I mean, it's something where it, a, a lot of 
our audience is younger. A lot of us think that we have years and years and years left, like you mentioned. And there's just kind of that reality that comes in when something major happens. And I'm wondering how you noticed that change while you were going through this process and how you've continued to change as a therapist really over the last year. Well, the change as a therapist is very much dovetailed with the with the change just as a person going through this because obviously the biggest change is that the um you know the comfort of being in a kind of denial where we all think you know we have this many years and we you know we project what you know what our life path is going to look like like that was shattered and i think that's the that's the toughest part so so there's this very different relationship to time and to energy and really to purpose. So I don't know how long I have. I actually spoke to a man who's he's an over 20 year survivor and he's a really amazing story. And I've talked to people who um, never really went into re- remission even after surgery. So, you know, there's really literally no predicting, but there's a just a very powerful sense that this day is sacred and a gift. And I literally have no idea what tomorrow will bring, you know, both test results, scan results, you know, at any point, I could just take a, you know, a sharp right turn back into treatment right now. I'm not in treatment and I'm waiting to find out if I'm in remission. So the the impact of that is that there's I, I don't know if it's quite right to call it a sense of urgency, but there's a sense of this moment having such tremendous value. And so that's the case in my personal life and in my work, I had to really bring that kind of presence and you know people wanted to talk about when I when I came back um, and started working and, you know, they had to decide, um, both what they wanted to know and what they didn't want to know. And then, uh, what they could share with me about their own personal, um, reactions to, um, my health circumstances. And that brought a level of, um, honesty and emotion into the session that was so profound bound. And in a lot of ways, I would say, so healing, um, because there's a way that the impact of my situation brought into a kind of focus for each person, like, I don't have forever, you know, that that's, a, that's right, it's a, a way that we comfort ourselves, like, oh, I'll, I'll do that when I'm in my 80s, or that kind of thing. But nobody really knows. I think it really sharpened the therapy in a kind of, um, in a good way, not like sharp, like, um, you know, injuring, but sharpened like a, like a sharp focus. We have this time together and we're here to get some work done. And, you know, are we doing that? And if we're not, what's really going on here? It's definitely a pushback against complacence. I, I can't imagine 
being a client sitting in my own complacence while you're battling for your life, right? And so I think it is mm-hmm. it is an interesting dynamic to to talk about. I kind of want to explore that, but I also want to get, you know, kind of practical. You know, you you had a handful of days each month that you could do therapy. You mm-hmm. had, you know, you had to make decisions. Who did you bring back into your practice? How did you talk to them about your diagnosis and ongoing treatment? Like maybe start with the practical and then we can get back into to some more okay. of the, the larger clinical. Cause I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm holding that. And I don't want to forget that we, we need to, we need to make this a, a survival guide for folks who hopefully will have a resource unlike you did. Yes. I, I hope that that is, that is the case. During COVID, I, I ended up working twice as many hours as I typically had been working. So I had a really big caseload because I, you know, I was able to do it and there really, um, there was no one to refer to, you know, as you both know, that was a really tough time and some people stopped practicing or people's practices were just full. So, um, so I had a pretty big caseload and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to take everyone back. And on a personal level, I had to really consider that some patients were much more draining to work with than others. And I didn't have enough energy to really do that kind of work and, and, you know, continue on with the number of people I was hoping to see. So there were people that I referred out and I didn't bring back into my practice. And then with the people that I did bring back in, it was only every other week, even people that I've been seeing twice a week. So it was really staggered. And I wasn't really sure who even um, wanted to come back because they had all been given these referral resources. To a person, everyone wanted to come back. So, so I was less available. You know, I couldn't do twice a week. I couldn't even do once a week and, and really continue to work with people. But I felt like doing every other week was viable and it really was working and it was powerful and people um you know very much were grateful for being able to to do that that's one practical question what what were some of the other specifics you were wondering just kind of what the conversation was when they came back into your practice because they'd had that kind of generalized there's a medical issue and now yeah. they're actually with you on the journey while you're you're doing treatment every other week or whatever that looked like. So what was, what were the conversations with the clients and, or what were the considerations per client, what you talked with them about related to your diagnosis and treatment? Yeah. You know, there really was a spectrum. And, and also I should say that virtually everyone I worked with, I'm just trying to think if there was even an exception wrote to me while I was on break and it was so touching the level of gratitude um, was just uh, like a like a nutrient for me. Just that the work was so meaningful, and um, you know, it just sometimes as a therapist, you know, we wonder, like, is this is this working? Is this is this doing any good? How do people feel? Um, I've described to people. Um, working sometimes where I feel like I I could be a potted plant in the room, you know, I'm not, I'm not a real person. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, there's a whole spectrum of um, theory about how much you should bring yourself 
into the therapeutic setting, you know, as a person. I mean, and obviously in a situation like this, it's really complicated. So, so you know, the the writing, um, the cards and things I got from people were were really beautiful. And then there were the sessions that I thought, oh, you know, these might be pretty tough. But by the time I was ready to see people, I was I was really ready. And and so I wasn't in that same emotional state that I had been the couple of months before. Y- you know, some people wanted to know details. Some people just started the session with, you know, catching me up on what had been going on with them. I mean, it really was a full spectrum. And when people wanted to know, there was a lot of consideration about what it would mean to them, um, you know, and how they would manage it and why they wanted to know. It just was kind of worked into the therapy. So, and then, and there were people who didn't really start talking about it until we were maybe a couple of months into treatment where they just brought it up because they were worried uh, about me and that their feelings would overload me. And then that was another very rich area for therapy. You know, we could talk about all of the things that are connected with that. What would you want people to know as they're searching for resources, as they're looking for I have a major medical thing. I have maybe an end of life issue that I'm just becoming aware about. What is your advice to anybody who might be first finding out about something like that? So that way they don't have to deal with everything that you did all at once. There's something to get them started. Well, the first thing is to get lots of personal support right? That you take care of yourself first. It's the, you know, the kind of cliche oxygen mask on you first. And that in order to make the decisions about um, how to deal with the professional issues that come up, you you have to be in good shape. And then there's, you know, that kind of thing, if someone said this to me, and maybe they did, you know, I mean, I just, it just wasn't real, you know, that you never know, and you should have a professional will. And, um, you should be prepared for these kinds of things. And I, and I think it's just part of our human denial and fear of death and pain that we just put, push that aside. And I would say, you know, at least educate yourself on what that means. Try to take some preliminary steps. And, you know, I hope that more therapists will write about these experiences because I, I was amazed at how little there was out there. Is there anything else that we should make sure that we talk about before we wrap up? My experience has been that going through all of this has deepened me and made me um, a better therapist and in a lot of ways helped me to kind of focus on what's really important in life. And, and I think that's, that's, um, that it's not all bad and that there's something about the gratitude for each day and knowing that you don't have forever, which I think is how we all go about living. Like we have forever. It has made me so much more in touch with the beauty and the value of every day and of relationships, because that's really the essence of what matters is relationships. 
And I found um, for myself that there were people that I might have thought were really going to, you know, be there if something happened that really disappeared. And then there were people that came forward that, you know, surprised me and were so consistent, you know, um, people like you, Katie, who just really, <laughs> you know, texted me, stayed in touch with me, called me. It was very, very touching and, um, and really helped me. So, you know, it really comes down to relationship and that's where it ties into what we do as a profession, because the deeper we are, the more present we are, the more real we are, the more we bring that into session. And I think that's, you know, that's the healing element because we bring that into relationship and that's what heals. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful, I think. And we've had other conversations about this and, and maybe we'll need to have another one soon. But it just, it seems like there's, there's a reality when you're facing actual you know mortality whether it's your own or or you know we had talked about you know the folks i that i've cared deeply about who've died recently and it just it it does change the nature of how you look at the world and it changes the nature of how you show up in session and and i i don't wish this on anyone and yet it is i think one of those things that does bring so much to you as a human but also you know to nod to the the podcast we're recording right now to you as a therapist and and it's been very interesting to think through if we don't have forever if we need to make now count what would we be doing different for our lives but also what would we be doing different for our clients and i think to me that's i think mm -hmm. the the thing that's very powerful that you and i've talked about is is just what sessions look like now versus what they used to look like so maybe yeah. before we cl close off just really quickly, can, do you have an example of something that you could share around how a, th a, th a therapy relationship has shifted in this time? I have a, a really good example that just happened this past week where I had, I had to say to someone that I work with um, that it's, it's unethical for me to continue with treatment if the treatment isn't really helping. And so that we we really needed to look at what was happening because we were in a loop and that was not helping her. Um, and it was a tough session um, and something where I, I might have in the past, you know, looped around with her for a longer time. Um, but because I know I don't have a long time. I don't know how long I have, but I know um, I know that I don't know. Th the session was very powerful, and at the end, she thanked me just so genuinely for bringing this up and really saying, you know, I'm not willing to be in a loop with you. Um, that is not therapy. Therapy is that we're we're making some progress here, and it's not that I have these unrealistic expectations that every week everybody's got to come in and report progress but but to really be honest about when some when when we're stuck and what to do about it and when i saw her a couple of days later in a group that she's in and you know she was really sitting with it and she had already made some shifts because there was a sense that someone else cared enough to say Staying in this loop with you is not healthy for you and it's not healthy for me. Where can people find out 
more about you, the work that you're doing, the work that you've done, anything that you want to share? Um, I have a website. It's just patriciaravitz.com. Um, I wrote an article about this topic that's on medium.com. If you just search my name, it'll come up. I, I think it's titled When the Therapist Gets Cancer. I believe that the Therapist Magazine is going to be publishing an article, I think, in March about this topic that I wrote. Those, you know, are ways that, again, I feel like it's a contribution to my profession to really get the word out on so many different levels about this this situation. So those are those are some some ways. I'm I'm not currently taking new patients, um, and I I don't really expect that I will again. So, um, but I'm working hard with the people that I already work with. Thank you. And we will include links to those in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. Follow us on our social media, join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, to continue this discussion and really, again, have conversations that haven't really come out of the the shadows or the background, you know, for a profession that does allow us to largely work until the end of our lives in the capacities that we either choose to or sometimes we are forced to. There does seem to be so little that just is about this process that one day or another, we're all going to end up leaving the chair one last time. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernohe and Patricia Rabbits. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 